Welcome to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth and I blog on personal finance here in New Zealand. Now, because New Zealand is a really small place, it is seriously more like a village, and the people I seek out are often uncomfortable having their story told in public, you will hear their stories from me and not directly from them so that I can retain their privacy. Plus, I could talk for an Olympic sport, so by doing it this way, you get a greatly edited version of the conversations I've had. And I just chat to people, I learn their story, and I condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are giving their experience, their tips, and their point of view on personal finance here in New Zealand. Now this week, I chatted to someone that I'm calling Alana, and I'm going to go super stealth on this one, as she requested I not give away any personal information about her at all. Well, except for the nitty-gritty details of her financial life, that is. Now, Alana and I had a lot in common, as it turns out, with one of those things being the ability to talk, which we did for about three and a half hours, which has to be a record, I think. Uh, Plus, I ended our call and I thought, man, I should have asked her this question or that question. And I finished all of my calls with many questions unanswered, mainly because I just find people so freaking interesting that there is always more to talk about. So just be thankful that I don't publish these podcasts as a recording, okay, as no one wants to hear. But worry not, I've edited the time right down. But before I tell you all about Alana, I just want to tell you a little bit about Hatch, today's sponsor. I'm excited to have Hatch supporting today's episode because they make investing in the world's most recognisable companies and funds easy and affordable. Hatch is Kiwi Wealth's investing platform and as part of the Kiwi Group family, they are 100% Kiwi owned and are committed to helping Kiwis grow their wealth long term. Whether you're new to investing or an experienced Wolf of Wall Street, you can be a shareholder in the brands you know and love and back the companies you grew up with, like Microsoft and Apple. Or back a green future with groundbreaking brands like Tesla and Beyond Meat. The team behind Hatch is dedicated to helping Kiwis learn that they can get their money working harder. So if you're ready to take your first step, head to hatch.as forward slash the happy saver. Before picking up the phone to talk to someone, I always take a few notes from information I already know about them, generally from emails we've exchanged. And for Alana, I had written, new to FI, big turnaround, got husband on board, started in July 2018 with car debt, personal loan, debt, rental debt, etc. And the fact that she had introduced me to the Netflix show, How to Live Mortgage Free, which I have recently binge watched. So clearly there was some good stuff to dive into there. Although I don't think we ever quite got to discussing the Netflix show, maybe next time. Alana first stumbled upon my blog, The Happy Saver, back in May 2018. She said that up until then, she had some ideas about budgeting, paying off a credit card, debt repayment and rental property, but nothing had ever managed to form into a proper plan. Her and her husband would always get ever so slightly ahead, but then they would always return to living paycheck to paycheck, every single time. Finding my blog sent her down a financial independence rabbit hole that she said that she never knew existed. I wanted to know what it actually feels like to live paycheck to paycheck because the last time I did that I was a broke university student but I've thankfully not experienced it as an adult. So I asked her and she said that it's like just normal. You think I've got this amount of money coming in and this amount I can spend and then you just spend everything down to the last cent. Sometimes you even spend more than you have. If a big bill comes in, then you are scrambling and you have to stop paying something else in order to pay that. 
It's a really uncomfortable feeling and it makes you feel insecure, she said, but it just became normal. She said it came down to ignorance and putting her head in the sand, for example, not looking at the credit card balance and and the statement and just hoping that things will improve. And over and over again, month in and month out, this was her normality, until one day she finally had enough. So let's take her story back to the beginning. She grew up in rural New Zealand with her parents and siblings and with a huge love of animals and farming life. As seems to be the case with so many people I speak to, her adventurous parents took the whole family overseas at one point and when she was still quite young she spent five years living the expat lifestyle, seeing a bit of the world and being exposed to a huge range of experiences and people. She was still just a young girl when they returned to the same property in New Zealand and she recalls her siblings and herself going in and out of the private education system as money allowed. Her parents had, she said, champagne tastes but a bare budget when it came to schooling. They wanted what they deemed to be the best for their kids, but were not in the financial position themselves to pay for it, but it never stopped them trying. She recalls pulling up outside one school in their family car and parking beside the BMWs of their friends, and she remembers the feeling of being very poor. Alana was very aware that her parents argued a lot about money, a lot. She developed the perception that money was bad, and she said, She was very cognizant of this and that awareness of money as a problem and a point of stress has followed her for many years, including into her own marriage. Through creating these podcasts, there are certainly some common threads that come through and one of the key ones is that watching parents struggle with money has a big impact on the child and many people I speak to have had to factor this into how they think about and handle money as an adult. They each have to consciously kind of reset their own perceptions about money so that they don't carry out the same destructive patterns as their parents. Her own parents didn't always make the best financial decisions, one being overcapitalizing on their home by being in a perpetual state of renovation, although never quite finishing each project, and never being quite happy with the outcome. She said that they were trying to be fancy people with the flash house and the kids in boarding school, but they never had the money to back it up. She said that her home lacked any real adult discussion about money, and there were always conflicts and arguments going back and forth along the lines of, we can't afford this or that. Her dad worked full-time, and her mum was a homemaker who did have a variety of paid jobs over the years, but not a career as such. So the great thing about her childhood was a mum who was present, and she was lucky enough to also have her grandparents just down the road. She said the biscuit tins were always full at Alana's house, the lucky thing. Alana never received an allowance growing up, so the next best thing was for her to pick up some jobs herself, like babysitting and some shop work. Now in her 40s, apart from remembering a bank account being opened at the BNZ, she has absolutely no recollection of where she spent the money that she consistently earned, and she was certainly never taught to save it. Despite having that account, apart from the occasional birthday money being deposited, no wages ever made it in there. She confessed to being a nerd at school, I'd prefer to call her a diligent student, and she worked hard there. And she also met her husband while still at school, and they've been together ever since. They've grown up together, really, and that must be such a rarity to find your life partner so early in life. She was actually pretty pleased to see the end of school and to move out of home, but it didn't mean that she was done with studying, and she went straight to university to start what would become the next six years of her life, bouncing around in various flats or living with extended family, before finally settling down after a few years into a flat with her now husband. 
While she studied, she worked cafe jobs and odd jobs, whatever she could do to earn some money, but it was a drop in the ocean really, and therefore the majority of her education and living costs were financed by a student loan. She also actually got married, as that would give her access to a student allowance, a bold move, and one that one of my own friends did while we were studying at uni. Despite the realities of living in dodgy flats and barely having enough to scrape by, she did really well at university, doing everything she could to blast on through her course, she said. A bit of an introvert by nature, the drinking culture of uni was just not her thing, and this allowed her to really concentrate on her studies, and all the while the student loans she was taking out were accruing interest, which they used to do, before the government changed the rules to interest-free loans that students have today. And she feels quite annoyed about that, to be charged interest during her course, when she had no ability to work and pay it down, only to have it waived for future generations. Her course choice also meant that there was a range of extra course costs that she had to fund herself, so while the course was challenging and enjoyable, it was also expensive. So she also took out her first personal loan of $4,000 on top of her student loans, and from there it just kept growing, and by the time she finished her course in 1998, she had $18,000 of personal debt and $57,000 of student loans, so a total debt of $75,000. She said that these lenders, both the government and private institutions, they do a disservice to kids like her, basically selling her debt when she was far too young to really understand the consequences of it. As she took these loans out, at that time she had no ability to pay it back, yet they just let her keep adding to it, banking on the hope that she would succeed in her future career and have the ability and the desire to pay it back. And I think that this is where financial education should have come into it, from a much younger age, to teach kids, teenagers, young adults and adults how to prepare for university course costs without incurring debt. And I know that this is something that I am already doing with my own daughter, who is currently 12. We are actively saving up for her education now so that she can study without debt, and I spend time educating her about how to handle money too, which I often write about on my blog. Alana admits, however, that she also made some poor decisions with the money she did borrow buying a car with some and spending today's equivalent of a small fortune to fix her sick cat. She tried to remember back, it was over 20 years ago now, and her overwhelming thought was, well, that was the cost, that was a lot of money, but that is what it has cost me to start my career. She said that it didn't register as a poor financial decision or a bad thing. Had it have done so, she said, the following years would have played out differently. Her husband also accrued student debt with his current balance still sitting at $9,000, so still not paid off over 20 long years after he finished his study. As far as debts go, it's apparently the last on the list, as it accrues no interest, but it is also the last remaining historical blot on their books, she said, so it has to go, especially given that they want to be able to travel overseas for longer lengths of time in the years ahead, and if they don't get rid of it, they will be paying interest on it. When she was ready to enter the workforce at the age of 23-24, it was not quite ready for her and work was extremely hard to come by. Many of her course colleagues actually went overseas to find work, but she stayed and worked a variety of jobs just to get by. She even ended up receiving the unemployment benefit for a few months because she simply could not find work, any work. It was incredibly disheartening, she said. She did finally secure a job in her career field, And even though she felt disappointed that she could not do exactly what she envisaged, she was pleased nonetheless to now have a job. She had an annual salary of $50,000 as well as on-the-job training. Even though this job started out as not being what she had envisaged, 
is actually where she remains today, having stayed with this organisation and changed roles within it several times, moving around New Zealand in order to do so. Back in the late 1990s, when she was looking for work out of uni, one of her friends convinced them to join the multi-level marketing group Amway. She said they spent so much money, thousands and thousands of dollars, not on the products themselves, but on education and the educational materials that would get them selling these products. They were sold the dream of the ritzy lifestyle it could afford them if they were to take it on, but the reality was it would require them to sell products and stuff that people really just didn't need, something that after a time she really didn't agree with. However, she said that she did actually manage to learn a bit. The money they spent went on buying tapes, yep, I'm talking about cassette tapes, remember them, tapes of influential people who went around the world on speaking tours, and on books too, like How to Win Friends and Influence People, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and Think and Grow Rich. So while they were trying to teach you how to sell to people and persuade people, they also taught other lessons like how to pay off debt using the snowball method and how to make a budget. Way back then, she even went so far as to write down all of their debts and start to focus on paying off the smallest ones. But the reality is that it's taken a very long time for this knowledge to finally percolate through and be put into practice. So during this period, they moved around New Zealand a bunch of times for her job, and they always lived on her income as his work was variable due to them moving about, which must have been difficult for him to manage. They added to their student loans and the personal loan and the ongoing cost of the Amway multi-level marketing education by buying appliances for their flat, all on hire purchase. They bought a second-hand car with finance on a five-year term, a car that by the time they were done had so many kilometres on it that it was worthless, so they just gave it to some friends. She did start paying off her student loan, however. Because she was on salary, the IRD automatically took a percentage of her pay, which she recalls was 10%. Today it's 12% once you earn over $20,020 and $20 a year and because she never saw this payment come out of her wages, she never even missed it. Because her take-home pay was always after deductions had been made, she never made any additional payments to any other debt and had the student loan deductions not been compulsory, she would not have done that either. They kept moving around so she could increase what she got paid, working herself up to a very good salary of $125,000 per year before finally, in 2006, becoming bored with the job itself and transferring to a better role for her, even though she took a $20,000 pay cut to do it and they moved to a higher cost of living area. It was around this time, she was in her 30s by now, and it was about 05-06, that she finally paid off her student loan after having repayments siphoned out of her salary for many, many years She recalls that she may have managed to put a lump sum of about $3,000 on it to clear that final amount, and she remembers having a mini celebration, and of course receiving a pay rise of 10%, because that portion of her salary was no longer going to that particular debt. She said of this time that there was no restraint, no thought to save up money to buy something, instead it was always a habit of need it now, must have it now. She said that had they done a bit of planning, they could easily have avoided all debt, but she had such terrible money practices that she would pay off a bunch of debt and then run it right back up. They continued to buy more items on higher purchase. She said that they each just really pile on top of the other, things like a bed, bikes and a lawnmower, thinking they were doing okay because it was an interest-free deal, thinking they were smart because they were, quote, using someone else's money not thinking that she was pre-committing so much of her future income for years in advance. 
not realising that you never get a good deal when you use these terms because you have zero power to negotiate the price and mainly because you can't afford the whole price if you were to pay cash. She considers this mentality of living off debt and thinking that money left over on her pay could be put towards the latest HP as her greatest financial flop. And looking at higher purchase or today's equivalent of afterpay, with some clarity now, she said that they give a false sense or idea that you can afford the thing you want. You see money left over in the pay packet and you feel, oh, I can get it now. And this means that you will get trapped in that cycle and never be able to save and buy something outright and get a deal for paying with cash. If you don't stop your HPs, you can't save because an HP takes all your leftover money every single week. And she should know because Alana has been doing HP for the majority of her adult life and it has got her nowhere. She has furniture and equipment that lasts five years and then dies, sometimes before it's even paid off. And she wonders by putting all of her money into stuff, well, who was she trying to impress exactly? She was never taught that restraint. She never knew to save up cash and then buy the item. Even when she has witnessed a family member actually lose their house because they just kept overextending themselves. Now I mentioned earlier on that she would make some good moves but then take a step back and one of those steps was when around 2005 she managed to save up about $6,000. That was the good move and after seeing an advertisement for a great interest rate in some type of real estate investment she put her money in thinking she had it sorted and was doing a pretty good job of being an investor. That was the bad move and unfortunately it was not to be. She had unfortunately put her money with one of the many finance companies that were to collapse and take everyone's money with them, including hers. Goodbye six grand. She knew she should not hold all of these various debts, but she simply struggled to escape it. Apart from the literature from Amway, she did not learn about budgeting at all. And let's face it, their motive at Amway was not to teach you to budget, it was to teach you to sell their products to others. She said if someone had just sat her down and told her how to budget, her fortnightly pay, told her simple stuff like paying your insurance annually is cheaper, but you can set a small amount aside on a weekly basis to cover that big annual bill in advance, she would have been ready to listen. Instead, she was paying a variety of HPs, and she could never save up for anything, and was therefore always scrambling to find money to pay bills, and never had any savings. She was living paycheck to paycheck. She said the simple stuff was just missing from her education. In around 2008-2009, she and her husband decided that they wanted to buy a rental property. But they would sign a sale and purchase agreement with a clause saying the sale was dependent on finance. They would then take it to the bank only to have it turned down. And this happened again and again. Even though she said that the bank had all of their financial records and they were using a mortgage broker, no one told them that they would have had more success in getting a loan if they didn't have so much debt. To me, this seems blindingly obvious, but these sorts of debts are considered so normal that her and many others simply don't see them as an issue. She said she finds it very difficult to comprehend now, but a frank and honest conversation which told them that all of those HPs, personal loans and student debt do have a negative impact on their ability to borrow even more money. That's what happens when you pre-commit your future income. There is a point where a lender will say no more. In around 2013, she was given the opportunity to work overseas, something that they really wanted to do, so off they went. And they were not to return to New Zealand for four years. 
sometime in 2017, and it was, she said, an amazing experience. But making a decision to stop her husband's job to go overseas, therefore stopping his income, meant that they lost an entire income outright. She said, talk about cutting off your nose despite your face. Due to their location, he was unable to work, so they never managed to replace his income. Yet they never adjusted and lowered their spending as a result because even now, they had still not learned any financial lessons. In fact, with the location they found themselves living and working in, spending money and living a good life were very much the expectation and the norm. Prior to this overseas adventure, they had never really ever used a credit card before. It was always just HPs, that was her debt of choice. But once overseas, they got a credit card with a $9,000 limit. And over the space of just a few short months, it was maxed out with an interest rate of a relatively standard, but no less shocking, 20%. They bought a car on finance too, with an interest rate of 6%. Because they kept separate finances and had never had joint finances before, and this card was joint, she could see for the first time that they were spending like they still had two incomes. It took her a while to figure out what had happened, but it was a massive reality check when she did. She began to feel that discomfort of living paycheck to paycheck again, just like they had been doing in New Zealand. And with colleagues going on holiday here and there, she just assumed that it was going on a credit card of some description, that was her excuse. She thought that everyone carried a balance on their card, So that big $9,000 balance of theirs, it just got carried for years with an interest rate of 20% with no idea how to manage a credit card. She said she was looking at other people thinking that they must make a fortune, not looking at herself and the stupid stuff they would buy. It came down to ignorance and putting her head in the sand, not looking at the credit card statement and just, once again, hoping things would improve. A few good things had been happening in the background. Those personal loans she took out back in 1995, the $18,000, well, in 2014, 19 long years after she took them out, she finally paid them off. Finally, the last payment was made. Goodness knows how much interest she must have also paid. She finally started to come to the realisation that this was in part affecting their ability to buy a house. And looking back now from the clarity of 2020, she is horrified that she let it take 19 years to pay off $18,000. It was insane, she said. They were getting pressure from friends and acquaintances back in New Zealand that they should be in a financial position to buy houses and make money. That's the only way to do it in New Zealand, apparently. And yes, I am being mocking there. A mentor of her husband, someone in their 60s, had made a lot of money from rental properties and they were being told that they should consider it as an option too. With those old debts finally being cleared and based on her income alone, they finally managed to secure finance to buy a house. They put down a $44,000 deposit on their house, but half of that amount was actually borrowed from his family. So in 2015, sight unseen because they lived overseas, that's what they did. Using only $22,000 of their own money, they bought a rental property. And once again, I, I know this is Alana's podcast and not my own, but I do wonder how and why a bank can see every single banking transaction that a person makes and still form an impression that these two were fit and able to take on hundreds of thousands of dollars of lending, when surely from everything I've just explained, they were unable to balance even their own checkbook each month. When half of a deposit is actually money borrowed from family, why is that never a cause for concern? But she said that back in 2015, the bank didn't question how they actually got their deposit together, or that they had pre-committed a portion of her income to pay back not just the bank, but the in-laws as well. 
Maybe it's a cynic in me, but I guess if a bank can see someone taking 19 years to pay off $18,000, they know when they're onto a good thing, right? That's a lot of extra interest payments over the life of a loan. But finally, finally, the tide began to turn for Alana in late 2015. She didn't know where she heard it for the first time, maybe on the radio, but someone said, just track your expenses, just try it for a couple of months, what's the worst that can happen? She was finally at a point in life where she was prepared to listen, to try to do something differently, to change their messy financial situation. So she did, she started tracking her expenses, and that was to be her tipping point, and also what she considers her biggest financial triumph. And her regret is that she didn't start out her working life doing this. She would be in such a different situation had she done so. And she still has the little size A6 book she bought to track things, which was very handy for when she and I spoke because she could now see the progression of her finally, now in her 40s, getting things under control. The book had just two hand-drawn columns, one for all of the transactions made on the credit card and one for her checking account transactions. And at the end of every pay period, she literally just wrote down what she bought, writing down every single transaction, like Uber Eats, $50, Shoes, $200, a magazine, $15, whatever it might have been. In April 2016, six months later, with a new understanding of where her money was now going, she started to focus on her $9,000 credit card debt, and she started lowering the limit on the card herself. Every payday, she was putting money on the card to sink the limit down and down, just a couple of hundred dollars at a time in the beginning. If you are struggling with credit card debt, stop using the card and phone your credit card company and ask for the limit to be lowered, and when it's paid in full, cut it up and close the account. She started to put money into savings for the very first time, which was giving her a small cash buffer. The mere fact of tracking changed everything for her, and she could see as clear as day what was coming in and what was going out, and she recalls feeling horrified about what was going out. Her one piece of advice for those people who hear this is just know that you need to track expenses. If you do just this one simple thing, you'll be in a great position going forward. She concluded that everything financial that had happened prior to this overseas move came down to, we didn't know what we didn't know. Well, finally, they did now know what they should be doing. At this turning point in her life, I was interested to know more about how they handle money as a couple. It's during our chat, we spoke mostly about Alana. I found it unusual that for two people who have been together for so long, that they keep their money so separate. She has always been the higher earner of the couple and her pay covers all the boring stuff. Any money he made, and don't get me wrong, whenever he could, he has always worked. His money was considered fun money for both of them. So she never really got to see what he was earning and it didn't really matter anyway was her thinking, as she was making enough to cover their expenses. And she didn't want to impose herself on what he thinks he needed or what he spent his money on. I speak to a lot of people who keep separate finances And there does always seem to be this grey area of what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine, but I don't really know what exactly yours is. Plus, I think the amount of risk a person is willing to take with their own money is different to when it's considered our money. If you are working on your own and you fail, you can look to your partner to help you out. If you are working as a team, well, you'd better come up with the best plan for your money because there is no one else to bail you out. She said that even though they were a couple who had been together for a long time, their disconnect around money goes back a long way. She saw a lot of conflict between her parents as she grew up, 
and much of the time it was about money and she thinks that this is one of the reasons why she never pushed her husband harder to get their finances sorted. It was because she was trying to avoid conflict in her own marriage. So that's a pretty astute observation. They used to move against each other in opposite directions for such a long time, but they now finally have a vision for where they want to go as a couple, and they do have some big plans in their future. And that's what thinking about your money together, as opposed to as two separate entities, will do for you. Managing money as a team comes down to communication and meeting each other where you are at and finding the right time to start a conversation. To get things moving in the right direction, she knew she had to convince her husband to come on board, something that is not necessarily an easy feat, and I know that many people struggle with how to start that conversation. It's a question that I often struggle to answer when I'm helping people, but I think it just comes down to communicating that the way you are currently living is making you unhappy and you want to work together to change that. If you have a good relationship, you want to make sure your spouse is happy, right? And if they are standing in front of you saying that they are not, well, you need to sit down and listen. So these two started working together more closely, but even when people have a wake-up call or an aha moment, it's still really hard to change the habits of a lifetime, and you will invariably make a few missteps along the way. After they returned to New Zealand in 2017, She was horrified at signing up to another car loan of about $30,000. Clearly, she still had a few lessons to learn, and it was at about that time that she came across the online FIRE community and the concept of setting yourself up to have FU money. Now, you might need to use your imagination as to what that might mean. She had clamped down on their spending, and he thought she was being a penny pincher, and because they were still learning how to communicate about money, she didn't want to tell him what to do but she certainly wanted him to learn along with her. And she said that in the past, she has not been strong on making him get his shit together, she said, but he has come around to the realisation that setting yourself up for the future is really important. Once she showed him the Mr Money Mustache blog post called The Shockingly Simple Math of Early Retirement, which had blown her mind, she said that the hair literally stood up on the back of her neck when she read it. Well, once she showed him that, he jumped on board with her. The fact that they could actually plan their financial lives themselves was amazing, she said. And now she said the fun for them is not buying stuff. Instead, it's investing for their future. As is often the case when people have an aha moment, despite the odd misstep, the changes have been rapid once they work together. They have set a five-year audacious goal to build up their net worth, and they now have targets and milestones to meet. She has learned that he loves to see trends and graphs, but he's not into the details. And that is what I mean when I say that you have to meet people where they are at and communicate with each other in a way that fits each personality type. But despite all this, he was still not as motivated as her to pay off debt. In order to get into that rental property, they had borrowed money from family, plus they had a car loan to pay down. She could see it was a suck on their money, but it didn't motivate him to beaver away on that. But once he saw they could invest, well, that got his attention. While she put the grand total of $45 into a mid-cap ETF, a New Zealand bonds ETF and a New Zealand top 50 ETF using sharesies and then sat back and watched it for six months so she could learn, meanwhile putting any money she could find into paying off those loans, he thought whoa and instantly started to trade shares with his fund money and promptly lost all his money. That's such a guy thing to do. But both of them did gain an education each in their own way. Now her fund money is going into Sharesies and Hatch 
and it's all in ETFs. And she has built this up to $5,500 because her attention is still on her debts. She has seen what happened with the GFC and what happened to share markets with the drop in early 2020 and then the rapid gain. And she said it was like it had a rocket boost just by leaving her investments exactly where they were. So she is happy to begin to increase her investments here over time. He, on the other hand, has at least tempered his enthusiasm for the fool's game of trading and has a mix of individual companies, which she's not happy about, and ETFs. He is trying to time the market in these uncertain times. Like I said, such a bloke, but she repeatedly reminds him that he needs to be a buy and hold investor and be in it for the long term. They still have their rental property and after paying interest only for the first two years, they are now paying principal and interest and the house has done what investors hope it does, particularly those who pay interest only. It has gone up in value on paper from 215000 that they paid for it in 2015 to now be valued at around $400,000. Their mortgage is now $160,000, so they have about $240,000 of equity. They receive rent of $395 a week, and this has slowly risen over the years as well, and they are about to have their fourth tenant in the property. They use a property management firm that they pay $120 a month to, and they think that this works well for them because it's important to protect their asset, and because they live elsewhere in New Zealand, she thinks they are far too far away and can't select good tenants or look after the place. The goal is to hold it and to eventually be able to use that equity to buy a home for themselves or perhaps another rental property. They're just not sure yet. She got into this, she said, as a way to make easy money. All they knew when they bought it was that they needed to buy a property and hold it. And I asked her if her thought is to build up equity to leverage into another property, why not pay it off, therefore building 100% equity by paying it down while also building equity through capital gains. After all, you can guarantee that by paying off principal, you own a little bit more, but you can't guarantee that you will get capital gains. Their friend and mentor is now asking them what they are going to do next, but she said that when she looks at the math of the situation, she's not convinced that owning 20 properties is the way forward, or even doable given the amount of lending they would have to carry. She has worked out that they would have to own a minimum of five houses freehold, to get enough rent to maintain their lifestyle. Say that's based on $400 a week rent times five properties. That gives you $104,000 a year before tax, before maintenance, insurance, property managers, etc. She had been of the opinion, like so many Kiwis, that buying rental property was the way to build wealth. But I think that their mentor bought at a different time and that their success cannot be replicated by these two without significant and risky lending into a market of steeply rising house prices. So what to do? Investing into the share market, like I just mentioned, via Hatch and Sharesies, has actually shown them another way and she is very grateful for that. She makes a very valid point here because when I ask people why they are so hell-bent on mortgaging themselves up to their eyeballs in investment property, It's mainly because it's all they have ever been made aware of, but these investment platforms and others like them have opened up a whole other way of building wealth, which over time will give them a much more balanced portfolio of investments. They both have retirement funds, hers is in an ASB growth fund, and she now has about $170,000 in it. The good thing about KiwiSaver and retirement funds is that, although not compulsory in New Zealand, there is enough motivation to get people to join and many people who are not handling their day-to-day money well will be extremely grateful to have invested into a retirement fund when they hit the age of 65. 
As long as they don't then turn around and blow the money, they should be able to enjoy a better retirement. Her husband, he took a bit of a persuading to get on board with KiwiSaver and has only signed up more recently once she managed to convince him that the money was indeed his, in his name, and it's not the government taking it from him. He invests the minimum into an aggressive fund to get the $521 top-up each year. Alana said that she has run some numbers and has calculated that if she leaves hers alone and continues to contribute 3% from her salary plus 3% from her employer, at 65 she will have, she said, about $880,000 and it blew her mind that just steady and consistent investing into her retirement fund, which is invested in shares, would get her to that amount of money. And I must admit that I've not double-checked these figures myself, but I suspect that she is roundabout right. And that's what slow and steady investment over a long period of time looks like. But now, as her knowledge grows and this journey gathers pace, this retirement investment is just one component of her financial plan. She has a full-time stressful job and she has little time to do anything fun and she does not want this to be her reality and to have to do this for another 20 years. So for her, this retirement fund is now a backup plan and not the main plan. She wants to get her FU money sorted so that she does not feel trapped in her job, that feeling that she can't move jobs because she would take a pay cut, or if you leave an industry you fall behind. She does not want to feel that way anymore. So Alana's, or their, shared audacious five-year plan is as follows, and yep, you heard me right, just a few short years ago they were borrowing money to buy a $30,000 car, had borrowed money off family to buy a house, were buying things on HP, had credit card debt that they didn't know what to do with, well, now they have an audacious five-year plan. And even though they still keep their finances as his and hers, there is a much greater crossover in the understanding of each other. She still uses a little book to write out her expenses, so she's still writing down what comes out of her account because it makes her be there in the moment to understand what is going on instead of wondering what happened. She now also tracks both of their income and expenses in a spreadsheet that she has created and she said that she is really nailing it every month and has this process locked in. She enjoys this process, she actually finds it quite therapeutic she said and she encourages you to find whatever system works best for you and just stick with it. Everyone is different and that's okay. But while she is now all over his stuff and can see his expenses and earnings, he is still in the process of becoming interested in what is happening on her side of the ledger. Once again it comes back to meeting people where they're at and some are just not interested in that level of detail. But there might come a point when that changes, and Alana would very much welcome that if and when it happens. For now, she is just happy that they have worked together enough to be finished on the debt, excluding his student loan and the mortgage, and focus on the future, and she knows that they are now both heading in the same direction. He is becoming way more cognizant of how his income can be utilised, and he is loving seeing the passive income coming from their investments, and she's really encouraging that interest. Things happen fast once you set your mind to it. In mid-2018, they really got moving and they started saving for an emergency fund. They opened accounts with Sharesies and Hatch. They owed $29,000 on that car and at that point, $18,500 to family and they still had $169,000 owing on their rental. They got really serious around September 2019 by tracking everything much, much more closely and being much more intentional about their spending. They cut back on eating out, unless it was for a specific reason. The daily bought coffee was obliterated. The weekly takeout became homemade burgers on a Friday night. 
and she started monitoring their net worth, expenses and savings rate on a monthly basis. And by September 2019, they had 7500 owing on the car and just under 17k to family and 165k on the mortgage. By October 2019, they'd paid off the car and all the extra cash was piled into paying off the family loan. He has now invested $32,000 into Hatch and Sharesies, which is a remarkable achievement given that he started from zero just a year ago. They need to put, she's worked out, about $7,000 away each month in order to end up having $670,000 in investments which will be made up of their rental property and equities by the end of 2024. She thought that setting this amount aside each month was going to be too hard and it was just a stretch goal too far, but she said that they are achieving it, even with the COVID situation, and that just blows her mind. Their retirement funds are not included because they can't be accessed until 65. She is tracking their net worth and watching it rise as their debt goes down and their investments and savings increase. They now have what she referred to as an emergency fund with fluff, which for them is three months of living expenses set aside in a bank account, and this amount gives her certainty. For the first time, if an expense pops up, they could cover it no problem. Gone are the days of living paycheck to paycheck, and I could hear it in her voice that it feels pretty darn good. When they got their last bit of personal debt paid off, the house deposit money that they'd borrowed, they had a small celebration. But now she said it's very much into the grind where they are consistently living well below their means and hard out investing the difference. To meet that deadline they've set themselves, they have milestones to meet and celebrate along the way and every time they reach an additional $50,000 in net worth, they have a little celebration with a glass or two of bubbly. And I think this is a really important thing to do. Just like paying down a mortgage or any large debt is a real grind, so is building up your investments. It takes discipline and a long time, so you need to stop to celebrate along the way and to remind yourselves why you are doing it. Referring back again to when she read that Mr Money Mustache blog post, her why, her reason for doing this, is that real deep understanding that things are possible if you just pull your head out of the sand, pay attention and do something. Start a process and work your ass off. She said, you can't learn this stuff and not do something. You have to take action and the result is a change in your behaviour and in her case, tracking her expenses is what kicked off that change. Alana finds that once she's on a topic, she aims to learn as much as she can and working out how to be better with money saw her progress through a few resources such as the wise words of New Zealander Mary Holm in her book Rich Enough. Plus a big help was hearing about all the other people I've spoken to for this very podcast. Then she found Choose FI, where she heard stories of other everyday people that were in the exact same position as her, getting themselves out of debt using just effort, focus and a goal. She likes the blogs of Frugal Woods and JL Collins, as do I. The escape artist, she likes his ability not to pull his punches. Some might find him quite confrontational, she said. And she likes the Kiwi traveller and blogger The Deep Dish because of his wide range of topics. She likes Get Rich Slowly by J.D. Roth and his YouTube channel for his morning musings, particularly episode number 30, she said, about focusing on the big picture. And of course, Mr. Money Mustache. There is so much there that she has benefited from, but the shockingly simple math behind early retirement is the one that gave her chills and really set her off. She got all the books out of the library that had any reference to money, with Martin Hawes being a key one. She learned about skinny fi and fat fi, which basically means saving just enough to retire. Fi means financial independence. Her skinny fi is about 1.2 million. 
or saving quite a bit more so you can have a more luxurious retirement, also known as FatFi, and her number for this is about 1.6 million. On Instagram, she follows Save My Sense and My Wealth Diary, two women documenting their journey from debt to financial independence. And what of her credit card? She actually still uses one, but in a way that is far different from before. It has a $1,000 limit and she feels completely in control of it, instead of the other way around. She said she feels like a grown-up now and even after the annual fee of $45, she says she is getting a tiny cashback reward of about $13 a month, so it works out okay in the end. But she is now no longer wedded to it. She is interested, she is earning some money from it, but is still just testing to see if it's worth her while. She no longer feels bound to it. And this card is with the BNZ, the bank she started with all those years ago when she was just a little kid. Now, however, this is the only account she has with them as she is no longer complacent about her banking provider and she banks with whoever looks after her banking needs the best. And I was very pleased to hear that she is starting to have conversations with others about money. So is starting to be able to both share what she is learning plus learn from others. Probably one of the most important conversations to mention are those she has finally started to have with her own parents around money. She said it was hard to go there but she is so pleased she has. She's also found a few people who are each at different stages of life, both younger and older, so they can chat about what's going on with them in regards to money. And she feels that she now knows enough about what she did wrong to know what she can do right, and she wants to help other people not make the same mistakes she did. Now, these are the conversations I love to hear about because I've lost track of the times that people have said, if someone had just told me I was doing something wrong, I could have changed. So Alana is in a great position to help other people have a few aha moments just like she did. Now as I start to wind this up, see I told you (laughs) it was a really long conversation we had, I happened to ask her what her living arrangements were now. They continue to rent and they pay an enormous weekly rent of $790. They could have found a cheaper place but they specifically chose the property they are in for its location and features and at the end of a hard day at work they both have a lovely place to relax in. And I have to admit to being surprised by the amount that they were willing to pay when they could rent somewhere cheaper, divert that save money to investments and reach the FI number earlier. But life is a series of trade-offs and my thoughts are that most decisions are not permanent and having justified their choice now, if in six months time they still love the location, well that's fine, just stay put. But if they want to change, well they can. And as for groceries, this householder too spends about $250 a week And this is the bit that makes me smile. They have sinking funds for bills and for upcoming expenses. There will never be another need to turn to a higher purchase agreement ever again because these two have got this sorted now. Now before I wrap up, I have another quick message from Hatch, today's sponsor. Thanks again to Hatch for supporting today's episode. Whether you're new to investing or an experienced Wolf of Wall Street, you can be a shareholder in the brands you know and love. So if you're ready to take your first step, to hatch.as forward slash the happy saver. So this has been one of the hardest podcasts to write up, in part because we talked for so long and I took so many notes, but also in part because their journey has been a drawn out and pretty bumpy ride. Alana is just pleased to be finished with all of the personal loan debt and the car debt. She talked about the weight that comes off your shoulders when you clear your debts and create an emergency fund just in case the shit does hit the fan, which it probably will at some point. Now she can focus on the future, especially now that her and her husband are much more united and heading in the same direction. 
in these podcasts, I'm always trying to show the journey so that if you are listening to this and you currently have HPs, car loans, credit cards, or mortgage debt, I want you to realize that it's not insurmountable. While I appreciate that in New Zealand, there are some people with struggles that are harder to move out from underneath of. For many, it's in your own power to do so if you commit to making some radical changes and working really hard. Alana and her husband have come a very long way in a short space of time, just a few short years really. Prior to that, she had some vague ideas about getting ahead, but never a proper plan. And as a result, not unsurprisingly, they never went anywhere and they always slipped back into old habits. The simple action of tracking her spending, not with the view to make instant changes, but just so she could observe their money, was an absolute game changer. And that's all it takes, the decision to start, and from there she just uncovered more and more information via the FI community about the next step to take. She said in an email to me that out of all of this, the single best thing is that she has her husband beside her in this journey. Initially he thought she was penny pinching, but he has really bought into the vision of where they are headed, which is basically to not have to work if they don't want to. Now in their 40s, they've been together since they were teenagers, and until September 2019, he had never saved a cent. He now has more money invested than she does, and he has started a KiwiSaver as a self-employed person, and she has found out that he loves graphs. They are still working out how to communicate around money, and financially speaking, they still have a fair way to go, but by her calculations, they'll hit 25% of their skinny fine number in late 2020, that will be when they have a net worth in the high 200s, excluding their Kiwi Savers, which, like I say, are locked in until 65. And they are tracking well towards their five year audacious goal date of October 2024, something Alana is rightly pretty excited about. Now, Alana was initially reluctant to talk to me for this podcast, but I managed to win her over. But she decided to do it for the pure reason that maybe, just maybe, her journey will help someone else with theirs as others who have shared their story have for her. I have absolutely no doubt that it will. So thanks so much, Alana, for your time. I've still got more questions, but I'll have to save them for the next time because I'll definitely be checking back in. In the meantime, keep up the amazing progress, you two. So that's all from me this week. That was a long one, (laughs) but I'll be back next Wednesday with another money journey of another Kiwi. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please hit subscribe and it will automatically update in your podcast app each time I release a new episode. And if you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And if you feel the urge, leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. Those are the best ways that people can learn about my podcast. And I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and whanau and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving. <laughs>